0: It was a tongue twister. <laughs> but I think you're ready for the genealogy of Jesus. <laughs> You've got until December. <laughs> Practice up. Hey, again, I'm really glad that you're, you're here today, and uh, I'm, I'm, also, I'm, I'm glad for a lot of reasons. Uh, it's always great to see you and, and to be seen by you. Uh, I also have the privilege of introducing a new family to you this morning that would like to be identified as a part of the MacArthur Park Church of Christ family. Nelson and Courtney Day, are you guys here? Can we get you to stand? Where are you? Right there. Hey, welcome. Welcome, and we pray that uh, you will be a blessing to us as much as we are a blessing to you in the coming years. Be blessed. Thank you for, for joining our church family. Also, we have come to that time in the assembly where we're going to open up God's Word. Second Samuel chapter 9 is what Larry read just a couple of minutes ago. It's going to form the basis and, and the bulk of what we're going to think about this morning. But inside of the bulletin, there is an insert and on one side of it is the sermon outline and illustration of grace. And uh, you can see the text on one side of it. Some fill in the blanks and places to make notes on the, on the left side. And I would, I would encourage you to use that. And there, there may be something that you want to follow up on or, or something that you may even want to use this to teach somewhere down the road. And here are the notes for you in a way to really engage in the message. And then on the back side of it, if you're new to Mac, you know that we... Um, We we love God's Word and one of the ways that we love God's Word is making sure that we think about it every day and that is the purpose of the MPG. MPG when it comes to gasoline in a car is about how far you go down the road with a, a gallon of gas in your car. But because the Word of God is so important, because it is inspired, because it is something that that instructs our minds and, 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 and leads us through this life and leads us to God, it's something that we don't want to just engage with just you know an hour here, five minutes there. We really want to engage with it on a regular basis, and that's what the MPG on the backside of the sermon is all about. It's about engaging God's Word more than just what we do on a sermon time Sunday morning. It's uh, memorize and prayer and it's glorify. And so there's a verse for you to memorize. There's a prayer for you to pray and to learn how to pray. Uh, you know, if you've not been very good or been taught how to pray, there's some instructions on how to do that. And also how to glorify God with your life, as it, as, especially as it pertains to what we're talking about this morning. And before we jump into the sermon, one last thing. Uh, you, you know... Uh, um, Uh, We say this a lot, and and I hope that it it, it sinks in, but when we say to each other and, and to people that we meet every day out on the streets and, you know, where we intersect with people in everyday life, when we say to people that the kingdom of God is the greatest offer a human being will ever receive, we really mean that. And it, it's, uh, it should be a part of what we invite people to, to join and to be a part of and belong to and to become a piece of, um, you know, every day of our life. And I, I want to, you know, I just want to invite you, if you've been thinking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Again, it is, it is the greatest life. It's not the easiest life by any stretch of the imagination. It's a, at times a very difficult life and 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 it is a a life that involves discipline but it is a life of purpose and because we believe that god puts his spirit in us we are able to become the kinds of people that we were always created to be but could never become on our own that it's not just a matter of grit but it is a matter of grace that we receive God's gift of a spirit of His Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, when we become a disciple of Jesus. That not only uh, testifies in our heart on a daily basis that we really are the children of God, but it is also that power that helps us become the kind of people that we were always meant to be. And that is the invitation to everyone and anyone today. If you would like to become a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, we would love to talk to you and, and, and maybe arrange for that to happen whenever and wherever. Uh, you can catch me. Uh, I'll be out by the green wall in the, uh, in the family room or the foyer. You can get one of our staff ministers or, or our elders or just the person next to you and just say, Can you help me find out or discover or connect with someone? that can help me understand how I become a disciple of Jesus. Now, we are going to conclude our sermon series on grace today. And if you've been paying attention, and hopefully you have this verse memorized by now. This sermon series about growing in grace is really based on this verse out of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Let's read it together as a church. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's read it one more time but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are to grow in grace. Now, by and large, this series has really been kind of geared to believers, to disciples of Jesus, to understand what it means to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To understand the doctrine of grace the truth of grace as it is to be practiced and how we are transformed by that doctrine that once we realize that we have been saved as a gift of, of from God and of God you know that impacts our heart in such a way that we are compelled to live a life that is worthy of that gift that grace that love that we have been shown by God through Christ Jesus and not only to 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 practice it and to understand it but, but, to, but to be completely transformed in the way that we see the world and see other people. Now this morning, though, we're going to switch gears just a little bit, and I want to gear my thoughts to the folks uh, here this morning and those that are live streaming who do not maybe think of themselves as Christian, or maybe they, they're wondering if they are a Christian, or maybe they're just kind of investigating for the first time what it means to be a, a, a Christian, a disciple of Jesus. And it's to you that I want to repeat this definition of grace that we've been using for the last uh, three months. And it's this. Grace is God's goodness for the good of humans. Grace is God's goodness for the good of humans. The question then is this. What does it mean for someone trying to understand what God and Christianity, the Jesus and the Bible, what does this definition of grace, what is it all about? That grace is God's goodness for the good of human beings. Everyone has heard this phrase, you reap what you sow. How many of you have heard that? How many of you have experienced that? Yeah, if you've heard it, then you know you've experienced it, right? Now, you may already know this, but this phrase, you reap what you sow... This actually comes from a New Testament, a Christian scripture verse at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 8. And there are lots of variations of it that we find uh, in, in our culture. Actions have consequences. Consequences are you know, a reality of the world that we live in. What goes around comes around. How many of you have heard that? You get what you have coming. Now that's a little bit more sinister, but I think we all know what it means. It always boils down to this little thing called cause and effect. It is a really important principle for us to understand as we try to live life, right? Cause and effect. And sometimes what it means is that you know there's something that you do and there's going to be consequences or some kind of effect in life. What goes up must come down, right? And sometimes that works in a positive way in your life, cause and effect, right? You, you, you reap what you sow. It has a positive effect in your life. You work really, really hard. You show up every day. You do the due diligence in your work of growing, going to the seminars, showing up every day. And what happens? You get the reward. You get a promotion or you get a raise. But sometimes, and unfortunately, it works against you. If you keep breaking the law. Day after day after day after day. You sort of become this serial lawbreaker. What happens? You go to jail. You end up in front of a judge. You maybe even end up in prison. I mean, we get that, right? Now, understanding cause and effect helps life to be a little bit more predictable. Most of the time. Understanding cause and effect helps life be a little bit more predictable most of the time there are exceptions in a broken world the world doesn't always work the way that it's supposed to because of this little word this little power in the world called sin you work hard you work hard you show up you show loyalty you work hard you grow as an employee you you go the extra mile and you get passed over for the raise or you're not recognized at the end of the year and there's no reward or no bonus you work really really hard this is what you're expecting and it doesn't happen or you see criminals beat you know the justice system sometimes it doesn't work the way that it's supposed to but there is another kind of exception to the principle of cause and effect there is the sin effect And then there is the grace effect. Grace is the exception to cause and effect. Think about it in terms of these three big words that we find in the Bible. The first one is justice. We know what it means to live in a just and an unjust or unjust uh, where injustice is kind of prevalent in a society. We know know, what justice means. Justice is getting what you deserve. I was speeding down the road. I was doing 80 and a 55. I got a ticket. That's justice. I'm getting what I deserve. But mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what you deserve. We find justice in the Bible. We find mercy in the Bible. But we also find grace in the Bible. And grace is just the opposite. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Just as sin sometimes creates the possibility for bad things to happen to good people, so grace, the grace of God, creates the possibility of good things happening to people who are unworthy, or they are undeserving of that great, gracious gift from God. So grace, in a manner of speaking, is this. Grace is God's kindness shown to people who don't deserve it. God's grace or God's kindness is, is shown to people who can't earn it. And it's shown to people who could never, even in a million years, even if they, if they tried, they would never be able to pay it back. You don't deserve it, you can't earn it, and you can't pay it back. And what I'd like to do the rest of the time that I have this morning is to get back into 2 Samuel chapter 9 and to give you an illustration of that grace that comes to us out of the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's the story of a man who was uh, lame. He was physically crippled in both feet, and he has one of the strangest names you'll ever hear in your life. His name is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is one of those names that, I I mean, it's sort of like Judas and Hitler. Nobody names their kids that anymore. Mephibosheth is one of those kinds of names because the name itself was coined in order to hide this guy and to not draw attention to him. It means out of the mouth dishonor or my life is a bummer. That's what this kid's name was. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David, great King David, is the undisputed king of Israel, and it's his greatest hour. It's the zenith of his popularity. He has consolidated power. At this time, David, by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9, David is probably, arguably, the most important king in the world, and the most powerful man in the world. And what he happens to be doing at this point in his own history, in the history of Israel, is he is turning Israel into a superpower. They are becoming a force to be reckoned with in the ancient Mediterranean world. And at the end of a day, he's sort of sitting back on the throne. It's been a good day. Hasn't been a whole lot of problems with the kingdom. And he's sitting there and he's looking over the kingdom. And he's reflecting and meditating over where his life was and where it is. And he reflects on this promise that he made. And in chapter 9, verse 1, David just kind of asks... Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul, Saul was the king right before him, to whom I can show kindness? It's actually the word chesed. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he says, you know, is there anyone that's still left of the house of Saul, the previous king, to whom I can show chesed for Jonathan's sake? Jonathan was his best friend. Now, typically, the first part of that, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? That would, that, something like that would always be said by the next king. And the reason for that is that the next king is wanting to know who is going to be my rival, who's going to be the one that's going to be after me or against me or undermining me. So is there anybody left of the, of the house of the king previously to me that I'm going to need to destroy? In the ancient world, that's what happened when a new king ascended to a throne. All the descendants of the previous king, if they could be caught, if they could be captured, they would be rounded up, they would be lined up in front of the town and they would be, or the city and in front of the new king, and they would be executed. And in a strange way, it would be a little bit justified in everyone's mind because Saul, if you know the story of David, he chased David all over the place trying to kill him. You remember that? And revenge, at least in everybody's mind in Jerusalem at this time, would have been super appropriate because you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. But David breaks the reap what you sow, the cause and the effect, and the what goes around comes around with one of the biggest words in the Bible, and it is this word here, chesed. Now, usually you might see it as H-E-S-E-D. In, in Hebrew, it's a chet, so it's pronounced this, this guttural C-H. You don't need to know any of this except those of us who are Hebrew nerds, but this word is one of the most inexpressible words in, the human, in any language, but especially in the human language. Uh, the human language. The English language. Well, if you speak English, you're human, right? So, kind of goes without saying. Now, I read somewhere that this word chesed, has been translated in our Bible with 169 different words. 169 different ways in the Bible, but the most common way that it is translated is covenant loyalty or kindness or unfailing love. And all of that, you know, the 169 different ways to translate this word in English, I say all of that to say this, that it is one of the most complex words in the world. It, it, it's nearly inexpressible, but the gist of it is this love that is like no other. It's, it's kindness, it's, 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 it's covenant love, it's loyalty to the high pitch of, of devotion. It is one of the most complex words in the world, but it means something like this. It's what I get from the person from whom I have no right to expect anything, but who gives me everything. That's Chesed. It's what I get from the person from whom I have no right to expect anything. But it's, he gives me everything. He gives me everything like grace and love and mercy. And so here's David. He's on top, he's in control, and he remembers a promise to his best friend, now his dead friend, Jonathan who would have been next in line to be king, but he knew that David was going to be the next king of Israel. And so back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, he and Jonathan have this conversation, and Jonathan says to him, show me, David, he's talking to David, show me chesed like the Lord's chesed. Show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness. The, the, the Old Testament God is sometimes portrayed as as bloodthirsty and 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 you know everything gets destroyed but the way that the, the the hebrews understood god was that he was kind the biggest the biggest surprise in the old testament is that god is a god of kindness the biggest surprise in the new testament in the christian scriptures is that the messiah comes as a servant but in the old testament in the hebrew scriptures it's that god is kind Show me chesed like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed and, do not e- and I'm never cut off uh, or do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even the, when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. That's what Jonathan is asking of David, knowing that David one day is going to be the king. And David says yes. And the really ironic thing about all of this is that nobody except Jonathan and God heard David make this covenant. This is a promise that no one heard David make except one other human being who is now dead and God. There is no one who is going to hold David accountable. But David has been shown chesed by God. And one of the principles of the Old Testament and the New Testament is that the blessing you receive from God is not something to be withheld from somebody else. And so he calls in Ziba, who is one of the old servants of King Saul. And David asks, verse 3, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show this inexpressible Old Testament Hebrew word that's been translated into English 169 different ways. This love, this, this unfailing love and kindness and mercy of God. And, and Ziba says there is still a son of Jonathan. He is, say it with me, lame in both feet. In fact, that's something that's said about, about uh, Mephibosheth quite a bit. Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, and he loses his father in battle. He loses all of his uncles. He loses his grandfather in in battle when he's five years old. And the nurse that's taking care of him, she knows that, you know, you reap what you sow, right? And when the next king comes on board, this little boy is going to be in danger uh, this king is going to want to kill all of the, the rivals or any of the successors to the previous king ahead of him, so he's going to try and kill Mephibosheth. The nurse knows this, and she tries to get out of Dodge, and in doing so, she drops Mephibosheth. He's injured, and he's crippled. He's lame in both feet. And not only has he you know, become disabled in both of his feet, he lives in a place called lo now, to us, that's just one of those names in the Old Testament. Where we just kind of gloss over it. But the word lo in Hebrew means no, and the word debar in Hebrew means thing or word. So, where he moved to was this place far to the east of the Jordan River, a little town called Lo debar that in English means nothing. Where did he move? Just the other side of nowhere, to a place called nothing, Lo debar. So, you have this kid who now has the name Mephibosheth. My life is a bummer. Don't pay any attention to me. I'm dishonorable, and I live in a place called nowhere nothing. And then we're told that he's lame in both feet. And that keeps being said throughout this text because what what the author is trying to say is that this person has nothing to offer David. This person is not a threat. He is, he is in no way a danger to you because of what happened to him in that accident. And the day that Mephibosheth has dreaded... He's now a guy that's been around for a while. He has his own son. And he's lived over in Lodabar. And he's been fearful that one day somebody's going to figure out who he is and where he lives. And he's going to end up back in Jerusalem. he's going to be executed. And the day that he has dreaded has now come to, 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 to bear... And he is brought before David, thinking that he is about to be executed. And he bows down before David, thinking that he is about to die. But instead of hearing the sword being drawn out of its sheath, he hears, in verse 7, don't be afraid. Mephibosheth, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. Jonathan, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always, always, always eat at my table. Mephibosheth is is standing, literally he's bowing, but Mephibosheth is standing before the one from whom he has no right to expect anything, but he is now being given everything. He goes from living in the home of Makur, son of Amiel, as an orphan in the town of nothing, to getting all of his wealth by getting back all of the ancestral land that had belonged to his grandfather Saul. He goes from being an orphan living in nowhere. And all of a sudden, he is now back in the promised land. He has all of this wealth returned to him. But now the big thing is he's in the promised land. He is a part of all of God's promises now. And not only that, not only is, is he safe and is going to be blessed and he's getting the wealth and he's connected to the promised land, but he is going to eat at the king's table like he's a son. Like one of the sons of the king. And then verse 13, we're told all of this again, but it's sort of a summary statement for the life of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always he's always going to live in Jerusalem. Why? Because he's always going to eat at the king's table. And even though he's got all of this land, he's back in the promised land, he's eating at the king's table, he was lame in both feet. It's a summary statement of this whole story and this scene as people in jerusalem and the king's court and everybody's looking around this scene makes absolutely no sense to anyone but to king david mephibosheth realized at some point that there is there was a love before he was born that would one day bless him beyond imagination now the story of david and mephibosheth and the covenant with jonathan that is a true story in the hebrew scriptures but this true story in the hebrew scriptures points to a true and greater story centuries down the road that involved a covenant between god the father and god the son and human beings you know, you know, Frederick Buechner, one of the great writers of you know, the, the 1970s, 1980s, in the area of theology, he wrote a book on preaching where in the, middle of, uh, at the beginning of this book, he says, to truly understand the power of the gospel, it's got to be bad news before it's good news. That before you truly understand and can embrace the gospel the way that it's intended to be embraced, you have to understand that the gospel is bad news before it is good news. And here's the bad news, folks that every person seated in this room and the one standing before you, we are all Mephibosheth by nature. In fact, we have to accept our Mephibosheth nature. You know, one of the things that we are tempted to play is the reap what you sow game, right? That, that, uh, that you reap what you sow game. We sometimes call it the to two-list theology. That that I'm going to church every Sunday and I'm showing up Bible class, I'm showing up on Wednesday nights and I'm doing and doing it. It's kind of this to-do list in order to earn God's favor. Not realizing that we're all like Mephibosheth, that there is nothing that we can do to, to deserve God's grace. There's nothing we can do to earn it. We can't even pay it back. In fact, the longer that we are disciples of Jesus in the kingdom of God, one of the things that we realize is that it's not only grace that brought us into the kingdom of God, but it's grace that keeps us in the kingdom of God. And so we sometimes play that to-do list theology where it's, I got to do, 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 do in order to be, 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 you know, right in God's eyes. And that is, my friends, the complete opposite of what grace is all about. Or we play the comparison game that one of the ways that I know that I'm okay with God is because I'm better than you. Or maybe you're thinking that you're okay with God because you're better than me. And we compare ourselves, and as long as I'm better than that cat over there, then I'm okay because I know at least one person that's not as as put together as me. And what we end up doing, I mean, we do this with with looks. I mean, we may look at this story of Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth and say, you know, how cruel is that? You know, it wasn't his fault. He has these, you know, these crippled feet. He's lame in both legs i mean how terrible is that to look down on him like that he couldn't help it listen we play the same gated, same game today it's called the comparison game and in our culture if you've got the looks or the body or whatever you got the money or the salary or you got the prestige or the power listen you're the guy on top we play that comparison game all the time and we mentally nick people to death and we chop them to pieces It is a continuing cruelty in a graceless modern world. But here's the thing, Mephibosheth knows that he's Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth knows that he's Mephibosheth. He knows that his name means something like dishonorable. That my life is a bummer. I mean, what does he say in verse 8? He says, what is your servant that you should take notice, that you should even notice a dead dog like me. Do we know that we are Mephibosheth in the eyes of God? The thing that prevents us from accepting God's grace is the deceptive notion that there is something in me, something in you, that earns or deserves God's favor? And the answer is nothing. That's the bad news that you have to accept before the good news. And the good news is this. There's a chair waiting for you at God's table. There is a chair that has your name on it at the table of the king. And as we accept our Mephibosheth nature, we also, in faith, understanding who we are and what it is that God is offering, we take our place at the table. Do you know what God has done? God has shown us love for the sake of another. Think about what John says in First John chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has what? Lavished on us. You know, the, the, the love of God is not something that He drips on, on us. It's not something that he, you know, he just sort of gives us a taste of it and then pulls it back just to kind of keep us alive. He, he pours it on us. He lavishes it, us with His great love that we should be called the children of God. All of us are invited to take a seat at the table of the King. What great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. All are invited, but only those who come trusting God and not themselves have a place at the table. Are you admitting to yourself, you know, deep down, I am a I, I, I have nothing to offer i have nothing to offer but i do see that god is inviting me to become his child i sometimes imagine the table in david's house you know his big stone room big table finest meats and everything there And there's Absalom sitting there down towards the end of the table next to where David would be sitting. You know, one of the things you can't help but notice about Absalom is just how good looking that kid is. All that long, beautiful hair. I'm so jealous. Smart as a firecracker, but, you know, just everybody knows Absalom. Everybody loves Absalom. And then there's Tamar, who's the daughter of David. Oh, man, is she beautiful. She's so beautiful. She's so nice. She just always has the right thing to say. Tamar is there. And then kind of coming late to the table is, you know, the guy with the big glasses by the name of Solomon. Ben, you know, he's been in the library all day. He's been thinking about, you know, how do you really translate the word chesed? He's a nerd. Smartest man, smartest kid who ever lived. And there he is. And they're all sitting at the table with the rest of the kids. And David comes in and, you know, and they're all just waiting. And then they hear it, Ch-ch-tap, tap, 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 It's the shuffling of feet and the tap, tap of crutches. And Mephibosheth arrives at the table and takes his place. And he is as welcome as any of the king's sons. And he is treated like one of the king's sons. And you know, that's what grace is really all about. It's really about the, the character and the nature of God. But at the heart of grace is an invitation. There, it is an invitation to, to, to come back to this God who, is, who just exudes goodness and just exudes grace in everything that he does. In every encounter, in every word that he speaks to humans, it's, it's come and be lavished with love. And that is the story of grace. Let's stand and sing.